Hey there, wonderfuls. This is Julian Burrell. I'm one of the producers on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Uh, Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted you to know that there is discussion of a number of current events in this conversation, but there is no mention of the recent awful shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, That's because this was recorded prior to Wednesday the 24th. All the same, I'm sure I can speak for Janet when I say that we're sending you love and hope that you and your loved ones are safe in this really scary time. Uh, Now, here's Janet with more on this week's episode. Hey, wonderfuls. Welcome to episode 470 of the JV Club with my guest, Gina Viola. Now, Gina is running for mayor for Los Angeles, but... I think it's such a great episode to listen to to just talk about the sort of state of politics in the nation and the sort of state of the national kind of emotional climate. Um, So I was so excited to just get a chance to spend a little time with Gina. And yes, we definitely get in the weeds a little bit about certain Los Angeles things, but not that much, to be honest with you. I think it's really worth a listen just to sort of hear how one person is trying so hard and doing such an amazing job of really trying to communicate in a, in a way that goes beyond like having a ton of money for campaigning. So I hope that you'll give it a listen. I hope you'll feel inspired in the same way I do to take action in your local environment. And um, I guess that's it. Have a, a, have a wonderful rest of your week. I've literally never said that in a single... Like, tell me I've said that in any other intro in 470 episodes. Tell me I've said that. Have a great week. But I do want you to have a great week. And I'll tell you this. Furthermore, I've always wanted you to have a great week. I still want you to have one. I want you to have one the next episode and the next episode after that. So enjoy this episode and be well. I'll talk to you next week. I hate to say it. I don't want to like invade your privacy immediately, but I'm glad that you took your backdrop away just because I'm enjoying um, all the like the poster and also the uh, all the earthenware <laughs> in the background. It feels like yes, we have the same this has style. Been my, my my infamous uh, Zoom position for the last oh my gosh, I guess three years now, two and a half years, however however long it's been. Forever. I have a, I mean I have a level of butt numbness that I did not experience until the pandemic, and I have so much more compassion. And not that I didn't to begin with, but just I'm not a person who wants to sit at a desk. I have a strong feeling you're probably not either, and you know just in a like I've spent twelve hours a day every day working at a no. desk. And boy, four is yeah, fine. Four, you know what? Four I think four yeah. is great. I like to break yeah. that up with some stretches when I can for these <laughs> yeah. old bones. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but yeah, just having the experience of like, oh, no, everything that I need to do now is tied to this technology has been it's been as isolating as everyone was afraid it would be, you know. Exactly. And I try to move around and it just you know, you can't hear, you can't see, like get your spot set up. So yeah, sometimes I'm just like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to be dark. I'm going to be backlit. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) But this is the spot. So yes, I put my little, 
my little homage to like everything that's been going on the whole pandemic behind me. So I feel like I have Al right over my shoulder. Great. Kenneth Mahia. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, this, I guess I'll just jump right in and say that uh, sure. that one of the things that I that has been so inspiring to me about your campaign for uh, mayor for the city of Los Angeles, I, probably most of my listeners who are listening to this read who I was going to be talking to and what the subject matter was. Um, okay. But is is the positivity is the positivity it's because i think finding that balance especially right now between like sort of having that righteous indignation which is a term that sometimes i think gets abused but um i think is a very good thing uh but also having positivity i think is such a hard balance for people to strike right now and i think people are sort of tipping into like sort of joyful nihilism or like rage (laughs) wow that's such a good way to claim it you know i think people are upset about their apathy but it's like you're right it's nihilism it's rage and love, yeah. right? It's loving rage. Yeah. And um, also, you know, Melina, Dr. Melina Abdullah from Black Lives Matter calls it a beautiful struggle, mm-hmm. right? We're engaged in a beautiful struggle. So if we put those words together, then it helps that connection to keep it positive, but also keep it yeah. moving. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what, you know, when we decide we're not going to be angry, when we decide we're not going to be uh propelled forward. That's what worries me, right? We saw this wonderful explosion after George Floyd was killed because folks, you know, were at home and they watched it. You know, what was most eye-opening for me was George Floyd was happening several times a month in our own city. I know Mike Brown plays an important role and kind of an impetus for you, right? Right. But even here in Los Angeles, you know, one of the things I was most struck by was, you know, hearing all of these leaders after George Floyd was killed, leaders of my own city, you know, denounce it. And and all I could think of was this is happening two, three, four times a month in your own city, right? The LAPD leads the city in police killings, followed only by the LA Sheriff's Department, you know, in the country. Ooh. So, but it was a wonderful time when folks tapped in and, and got out on the streets and despite a pandemic, yeah. got out on the streets and, and were finally making the connection that, you know, we are living in a police state and it's costing others, you know, it's it's costing all of yeah. us, but it's costing a lot of family members very directly. Yeah. Are there relationships that you've developed with any police, whether they are comfortable being named or not named, who feel as so many of us do and who do feel like there's got to be a way for me to participate this from on in this from the inside? Um, because that for me is part of the hope, like wanting to feel some sort of hope that the kind of endemic structural brokenness is not um, to the point where it's just sort of, you know, darkened the hearts of of everybody who has come up in it. Um, thoughts on that? I wish I could say yes to yeah. that. And I'll I'll share a couple of things with you. You know, after a couple of years of being in police commission meetings every week, I kept looking around the room at all the police officers and I just kept being struck by the fact that, you know, they're they're human too. Like, how does this happen? How does this happen with humans? And there's something that happens when they put on that uniform. Mm-hmm. Their humanity, I think, gets left behind mm-hmm. when, the, when the uniform goes on because it's not about the individual police officer, it's about the institution. Right. 
right? The institution is is deeply, deeply rooted in white supremacy. It's the enforcer of white supremacy, which is codified into our legal system, you know, enforced by law enforcement. So it's really difficult. I mean, I definitely have connected with officers out on the street. It's kind of interesting. I had one who would come see, we have a weekly action at the LA Police Protective League with Black Lives Matter. And the first, I don't know, maybe two months, the officers would come by and say, you can't be here like this. You know, why are you setting up? Because we closed down mm. the street every week. And um, one of them asked, said something about like the following week. I said, well, I won't be here next week. I'm going on vacation. And he was like, you're taking an airplane? And he brought me these wipes and he was like, please tell me you're going to wear your mask. And it was, yeah, it was interesting. I was like, you know, it's, but it's not really about that. Right. It's, it's not the good cop, bad cop, bad apples, good apples. It's the institution itself, yeah. you know? And if you look at what's at the top of the institution yeah. and their commitment to maintaining the status quo, which is zero uh, bias, police reports are, uh, are found to be credible out of like 5,000, mm -hmm. right, in a couple of years. Misreporting numbers, you know, one of the things I did in that weekly police commission meeting, I have notebooks like this. I would take copious notes every week I was there. I would hear the police chief give an exact opposite report of something he had said the week before. I would skip back oh my in my goodness. notebook and, and be able to, to cite it when I got up in my public comment. And we've just normalized this. We've just normalized that, you know, and if you look at cop shows, right? The cops almost always have to break the law to catch the bad guy, Yeah. right? It's, I know, I know it sounds, sounds trite, but like, it's, it's powerful when that's what you see over and over and over again. So you normalize this feeling that they, they are above the law. Unless it's right? like an anti-hero thing, in which case somehow you're sort of, you're sort of tasked with like, thinking about like rooting for the bad guy, knowing he's the bad guy, but still he's your right. point of, and I do say he, cause for the most part it is men, but that you have him mm -hmm. as your center point. So you're like, okay, my cognitive brain knows, like I will use the, the shield as a great example. And that's a, a show that was decades ago, but it was an extraordinarily corrupt department. All, and, mm -hmm. and, and I think it did actually kind of a yeah. great job of fictionalizing the rampart area and sort of what it was famous for and continues to be famous for. Um, but this idea of like, you still have to kind of have the cognitive dissonance of like, I mean, I'm seeing most of the show from his perspective, so I find myself wanting him to get away with this. But yes. yet I do yes. know, I do know that he's a villain. I do know that. I know he's an anti-hero. So it's interesting because I think that's the that's kind of a thing that I feel like David Simon and and you know, folks who are trying to tell mm -hmm. stories that are rooted in journalism and rooted in real reporting um, with a sort right. of anxiety about wanting to get that message out there are, are, are tasked with is like, well, you need your characters to you want to follow the characters. But and so they and they're human. And how do you show their corruption? How do you show how they got corrupt? And how do you focus the spotlight on the institution while still making the individuals responsible? Like that is a big job. And then also, how do you get a network to be like, yeah, we'll put this on TV, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when journalism is so complicit, oftentimes, you know, I'm so frustrated at how frequently the LA Times just reports directly what they get from the LAP. Right. Yeah. No fact checking. You know, I've been in the police commission room and read the uh, recap of it afterwards, and I'm just astounded. 
I'm like, yeah. it's, it's, that's not at all what went on in that room. That was the LAPD's version of what went on in that room and what's going on out in the community. And so it really forces us to, to we, we just have to really think critically about all yeah. of it. And that's another piece that tends to be missing these days. And I think it's just because it is, it's so daunting. It's so daunting. The task of taking that on is so daunting, especially, and I'm just, as white people, we are taught to call the police for everything. We are taught to dial 911 before we're even able to talk, really. And, and for everything, a squirrel in our driveway, trash cans in our driveway, our neighbors making too much noise, something. Yeah. You know, it's it's rather than get to know your neighbors, check in with your neighbors, like keep each other safe that way, we just dial 911, yeah. right? And... So it becomes really challenging when we're asked to think critically about the role that police play in our society. Absolutely. Well, that's a question that, you know, I'm a big criminal justice reform sort of podcast. I like that universe because it's a little less, it's, I would say it's far less for the for the really great stuff that's going on. It's far more local. It's tapping into far more local resources and journalism that is coming from people who aren't, they don't have a degree from college. They are just reporting on what they see and what their own experiences in their communities. And I think that's something that, you know, really gets called to task in those sorts of worlds where it really is about um, what are our community leaders saying? What are our, our community leaders who are representing mm-hmm. a very small group of people to a very large group of people, but they are on the ground? And I think the thing about the Internet that's so frustrating and scary is, you know, it's even worse now because people just... They just report on what's our, what they've what's been reported. So they're not even going to the source that's wrong in the first place that you're describing, which is like a PR release from a police department. They're just reading the L.A. Times story and then they're reporting it, the exact same misinformation and it proliferates instead of like used to be that like your resource was your source and there was one or there were five, but you had to go over and talk to someone. And now it's like, well, I don't know. I read like three different stories that three publications already put out. And then I wrote my own story for my publication. So it's just this like, in like, and we can only hope they read the whole story (laughs) and not just the headlines, because that's often what's happening too. You know, you have, you have folks recapping a headline and then recapping that. And, you know, I used to get into this argument with my husband when um, when this really exploded on Facebook about I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Right. Probably yeah, just leading up right. to Trump yeah. getting elected. And um, and we had a very different we, we were very different of opinion. My thought was it needs to be an education thing. Like folks need to be educated that this is not news. Right. This is your phone book. This is your photo album. This is your photo sw- swapping place. Um, keeping up with, you know, alumni speaking of, you know. <laughs> high school and right. JV. Um, and he was like, no, it needs to be regulated. It really needs to be regulated. And it was so interesting because we, I mean, we really did not see mm-hmm. eye to eye on it at all. But this was like 10 mm-hmm. years ago. So flash forward a few more years, Trump, you know, ha- escalates. And I did start to, I was like, okay, you know, the education piece is going to be slow. But truly, so much of what ails us is about reinvestment in education. I couldn't agree more. Right? If we I really would, re- you know, the right Republican, I don't even know what I want to call them anymore, but um, Republicans played a long game when they decimated public education and got us here, exactly here to where we are, getting ready to give up our bodily agency, right? We're going to lose our rights to an abortion. 
trans people can't get medical care anymore, you know, who knows what they're coming for next. This is exactly what they wanted 30 years ago when they decimated public education. Um, and we stopped teaching kids to think critically. I mean, the fact that we even have this huge discussion about critical race theory and, and it not being taught. I mean, let's face it, when I went to school, the way slavery was taught to me was Aunt Mamie's in the kitchen baking bread, mm. right? This like benevolence or, and then, you know, and then everybody got free and we all went to school together. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thankfully, I had parents who, when I would come home, would look at my stuff and, and augment what I learned at school um, and add to it, which, you know, I've, I've even had to do with my, my children are 14 and 16. Yeah. They're going to school in Los Angeles in the year 2022. And two years ago, when I read the lesson that they had in history and slavery, it was maybe two or three years ago, I was beside oh, myself. No. Because one of the questions was, what were the benevolent, what were the benevolent parts of slavery? And the teacher explained to me, you know, why he asked that question and, and what it was about. But, and thankfully the teacher is, is a social justice advocate. He's black. He's the only black teacher at their school. Um, but without the context of knowing why he's asking that question and without those kids going home and having that context, it, it really worries me. You know, I read this morning that in Texas, um, if they're talking about what happened in Buffalo, they have to add that the shooter might have just been trying to protect his own. What? Something like this. Yes. They, I, I just read it this morning. And again, here I am quoting a, a headline <laughs> without having read the article. <laughs> uh, but um, no, it, yeah, it's, it, a teacher had written in saying, if we, if, we, if we are discussing the shooting in Buffalo and we mention white supremacy... We have to give the uh, other approach that he thought he was doing right, protecting his race. Wow. Oh, huh. Right. Okay. Right. And, you know, it's surprising, but it's not surprising because if you look at all the deep dive everyone did after George Floyd about what was happening in eighth grade classrooms, right. you did see that. You did see that two versions were being taught. And, you know, we're living in a country that hasn't reckoned with our birth defects. Yeah. We haven't done land back in any meaningful way to the indigenous that we slaughtered to take this land. And we certainly haven't done reparations at all for the enslaved humans that we kidnapped and brought to this country to build it and build incredible wealth for white folks yeah. here. So, and I know that sounds so large but this is part of what I'm dealing with in my platform here in Los Angeles running for mayor is that if we don't get to the root of um, U.S. housing policy and how racist it is, it was U.S. housing policy was designed for white wealth building while extracting wealth from black people in particular and people of color in right. general. And if we don't topple that fact, it doesn't matter what we do here. There will always be people living on the streets because of this racist policy that we're beholden to. And I'm surprised when I say it, um, and I usually will say, you know, no one, no one asks me a follow-up question about mm. this. And I still don't get asked a follow-up question about it. And I think it's because it's, it just seems like, well, wow, where do you go from there? But to me, you go everywhere mm. from there. You go everywhere from there. If you get everybody in the room going, yeah, this is right. We should not be beholden to this US housing policy. Right. We should not be trying to make all dots connect back. 
when we're building affordable housing, when we're deciding whether or not we're going to have tenants' rights, when we're deciding whether or not we're, you know housing is a human right. If we leave, if we take that piece of the puzzle away, suddenly it opens us up to a whole new, vast amount of possibilities to make folks be able to live and thrive here in this city. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Wonderfuls, if you listen to this podcast, then you already know I love Tignataro. That's why I got to tell you about Don't Ask Tig. Now, Don't Ask Tig is a podcast hosted by comedian Tignataro, and Tig doesn't have all the answers, but with help from friends like me, Margaret Cho, Esther Perel, and Paul Rudd, they'll offer up funny and honest advice for life's many issues, like exercising bad vibes from an inheritance given by an evil relative. On my episode, we battled the tricky issue of how much a tip waiters in a foreign country and how to fend off creepy guys at work. They can't promise it'll be good advice, but it will be a good time. Subscribe to Don't Ask Tig wherever you get your podcasts. You're in a theater. The lights go down. You're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she just stand up to her? Oh, God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If you've ever recognized yourself in a movie, then join me, Jordan Cruciola, for the podcast Feeling Seen. We've talked to author Susan Orlean on realizing her own marriage was falling apart after watching Adaptation, an adaptation of her own work, and comedian Hari Kondabolu on why Harold and Kumar was a depressingly important movie for Southeast Asians. So join me every Thursday for the Feeling Scene podcast here on Maximum Fun. Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. (laughs) In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Schreier. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! Daunting is such a word that I mean, I'm sure at almost every at almost every turn looking at, you know, being a mayor in a city like like Los Angeles, I think is daunting is like got to be right at the top of the list of sort of what people think (laughs) of when they think of taking something like that on. And you said it and I thought it, you know, it's interesting is when you were when we were talking about sort of police brutality or or police reform and you use the word daunting, it was like a Pavlovian bell for me to think of homelessness without even meaning to just the word daunting for me where does that go straight to go straight to the homeless population or unhoused i'm sorry i should Uh say to being quote unquote homeless as it's called being unhoused um uh that is a situation where you know there's some there's a lot of terminology that 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 people that we sort of if we're not necessarily active in a certain community we're not necessarily active in in on a daily basis we we are using and not realizing that it is pejorative Mm -hmm. at this point like in my heart calling someone homeless is no in no way different than saying unhoused in my heart but of course i want to respect 
the conversation. Right. I want to respect the fact that it is being used pejoratively um, by so much of the rest of society. So I want to apologize right. for that, but and acknowledge that. Oh no, you don't need to apologize for that because when we still talk about policy, you know, when we're talking about the humans. We we want to be really careful that we, we're talking about the unhoused. That's when you're using houseless, right? Because home is where the yeah. heart is. Right. So if be that in a tent, be of that course. in your car, be that. But when we're talking about the overall situation, you know, the w- homelessness is what's used. Right. right. It's what it's it's the condition that's created because people are unhoused and forced to live on the right. street. Right. So I understood. Well, what thank you. you. Uh, but, you know, t- talking about, again, as as you said, and as you're sort of pulling those pieces of the quilt together with all of the different policy that you are proposing, uh, this incredible community involvement necessity and this very, um, you know, how do I succeed? I surround myself with people who know better than I do about each and every yes. one of these things, not I'm I'm the expert and I'll surround myself with people who will continue to tell me I'm the expert, that I want to be surrounded and everybody lift each other up with, I don't, I'm not, I wasn't there. I don't know about this. This person has spent their life, you know, having this experience. And, and that is, that is so inspiring. And I think that is, again, as we sort of drag ourselves through the really, really tough conversations and the daunting aspect of all of this is really feeling like and especially in this time of isolation that so many of us are experiencing during a pandemic that is you know the fever so much of the whole Trump being elected like we really started using words that I think are useful maybe for people who have not thought about that way before the idea of a sickness the idea of a disease the idea of a diseased foundation the idea of uh, a sickness where the the sickness rises and it and it becomes you're like well we're dying <laughs> like right. this is what we're dying this is from what the death bottom looks up. like this is what death looks we're like we're dying it's, from the it's bottom sores, up. That's exactly it's rotting right. it's sadness it's hate it's all of this is like yeah that's sick that's a sickness this is an organism that is deeply deeply sick and i think i think at least in my own personal experience that it has that is a that is a, a metaphor that has helped people I think see something a little bit differently and I think having mm. then having an actual sickness <laughs> also sort of push that even more into frame but this yeah. idea of being able to find the strength in the community and being able to find the strength in other people's life experience and other people's perspectives is is so thrilling to me in like I almost feel high from it. Do you know what I mean? That feeling of like, oh, my gosh, exactly oh, my gosh, mean. this is so big, you know? Yes. Yes. Wednesday was my sweep defense day for um, Hollywood Street Street Watch. And honestly, I'd be going to bed Tuesday nights going, I'm going to be with the best humans I get to be with all week on, on Wednesday morning. I mean, like. You know, that was probably like after a year in when I'd made, you know, significant connection with folks. Um, Truly. And again, you know, we're in pandemic. Right. So we aren't hanging out in normal ways. And, you know, we would often say that some of my comrades and I at Streetwatch would say that to one another. Like this is we're we're actually getting to socialize far more than lots of folks are (laughs) because we're out here doing this. Will you uh, real quickly, um, Jeannie, I'm so sorry, but will you tell folks who are are not Los Angelinos, I guess some who are, but um, what you mean by Streetwatch? 
Sure. So Streetwatch is an organization that was, I don't even know how long ago it was created. I got added to a thread. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was how I became, became a member. Um, but we, you know, we connect with the unhoused and then support the unhoused in the way they want to be supported and the way they tell us they need support. We don't show up as saviors. We don't show up, you know, to, uh, because we think we know best what they need. Um, the city is, does these cruel sweeps where they force force folks to move so that they can supposedly hose down the street, uh, which sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. I can't tell you how many pictures of trash I have on my phone because they make folks move and then don't do anything. I just had leave. that experience yesterday, um, literally yesterday. I was like, yes, I saw yes, this being yes, uprooted and yes. I'm seeing the result five days later and it looks almost yes. the same. Looks except there's no person here anymore. What the fuck? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So at Streetwatch, you know, again, it's about that connection, right? So part of what we do is we do weekly power ups where we charge people's phones, hang out, have food, make art, um, because connection is everything. Connection is when you start to be able to truly understand from folks themselves what is needed. You know, it's it's people used to just pull up and throw food out of the car, right? Or, you know, not realizing that they're leaving food that's going to bring bugs and rats and all sorts of things, right? Um, But really getting to know our unhoused neighbors who say, you know what I really need is a bag of trash, as a box of trash liners, right? I'm like, easy, I can do that. I can, you know, I can bring you a box, you know. Um, But how would I have known that if I didn't make the connection? Um, But with the sweep defense, it's, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes folks, they're fine to move. Some of them will even say, you know, let's move. It's we need we, things need to be swept here because people keep driving by and throwing food out the window oh, at us. And so there's all this food oh, debris no. um, or sometimes people can't move. They cannot move. You know, there's a lot of cancer patients living out on the street. They've come from chemo. The, la- the last experience I had in the in the like last seconds moving somebody's stuff before they lost it all. She was eight months pregnant. Mm. Right. Like it's, and if they don't want to move, we're there to help them stand their ground. We're not preventing sanitation from doing their job. We're not stopping the city from doing their job, but let's face it. The city has responded to this crisis with sanitation and police for human beings forced to live on the street. If that's what you're considering a solution, we already know we've lost, Yeah. right? We already know we've, you know, Loss has been completely disempowered. Well, truthfully, because there just is no housing. There's no, we have no public housing. We have very little, almost no no affordable housing. We rely on these vouchers. We rely on the private sector, right, to, to take these vouchers. We now know folks, because the pandemic gave us a unique opportunity, I know folks who do this work in all different parts of the city, and I am telling you the reports are the same, right? Folks finally get off the streets, they're in transitional housing, in these terrible sheds, right? These sheds they're calling housing, which are not housing, they're sheds, um, or in Project Room Key, and have these vouchers that go nowhere. Mm. And yet the folks who run Project Room Key or run these tiny sheds keep telling them, tick tock, tick tock, this is coming to an end. This is coming to an end. And the tyranny of it is, it's it's outrageous. The other thing, you know, the city, the city partners with all of these nonprofits to actually run these programs. 
So, you know, if you're a city worker, you might make a good living. You might make $40 an hour. You might make enough to live in the city of LA. But then the city goes ahead and partners with a nonprofit that's only able to pay somebody $15 an hour to go and be a supposed caseworker at a project room key for folks who are just coming off the streets, having been there for years, you know, whose needs are otherworldly at this point. Yeah. We've ignored this problem for so long, we don't even truly know yeah. how to, what the needs are, yeah. right? Echo Park Lake is a great example, right? They, CD13 decided they were gonna sweep Echo Park. It's a really tragic story. I should back up because Echo Park, Echo Park developed an encampment, a shanty town, if you will, that was thriving. They built showers. They had a garden. A couple of them got married there. They didn't take up the entire park at Echo Park Lake. It was just a section of the park. Okay. And it was not easy for this community to build like this because the city did everything it could to fight them. They locked the bathrooms. They turned off the lights at night. You know, we had to advocate to get those bathrooms open again so, during a pandemic. Um, I think it took like nine months for them to finally unlock the bathroom, something like this, um, which is just outrageous, right? Like, and then one of the complaints when they cleared Echo Park was how much human waste was there, which I never really understood if that was accurate or not. But the point is that was the city's own making. So then they decide they're going to clear it because the newly gentrified housed folks who live above Echo Park don't want to look at the tents anymore. Um, more people have died from that sweep and banishment than have been housed of the 200, almost 200 people they removed. Yeah. I believe it's nine that have died now and maybe seven or fewer that are on a path to some sort of housing. Yeah. So that's, that's the reality of what we're dealing with. So, you know, the city during a pandemic took meetings with Jeffrey Katzenberg in, in private. He met with each city council person. I don't know if all 15 met with him, but I think at least, at least 10 did, if not all 15, privately, when no one else could get in to meet with city council. And he got them to bring back 4118, which has been found to be unconstitutional twice. That is the ordinance that makes it illegal to sit, lie, or sleep in designated areas in the city. And basic, basically each city council person can designate the addresses that they want that to, to apply to. And if you, Kenneth Mejia has done a map on his website and it's basically the entire city. So we have 40, you have these horrible signs. I don't know if you know if you've seen them, but they're just everywhere now about how they're special enforcement zones. And, you know, so basically you can be swept away at any moment. And if you refuse to leave, you go to jail. Mm. So many problems with this. First off, it's giving up our bodily agency. We're deciding that the state gets to decide where our bodies can be. And make no mistake about it, it's a slippery slope to the Supreme Court saying we can't have an abortion. Yeah. Right? When we decide the state can decide where our bodies can and can't be, it's not a far reach for us to get yeah. to that place. And so when they do 4118 sweeps, you know, people lose all their belongings. You know, this one man, it took forever for my good friend, Bunny, worked hard to get his birth certificate. Okay. It was a big deal. He hadn't had it in 10 years. It's gone from a sweep, oh. right? Um, and that's just oh. one of many, many sure, stories. You sure, know, uh, somebody, somebody was just matched, right, with a voucher. 
hopefully a voucher to somewhere. Most of them are to nowhere, but just match with a voucher. Caseworker can't find them. Hmm. They're gone. Yeah. So, you know, the process starts all over again because you only have so long to make good on that match. And um, really, truly, the dirty little secret in this all is there's a lot of money being made on poverty. There are a lot, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex has become enormous, enormous. And to no fault of their own, you know, I'm sure everybody starts out with the right intention. They think they're doing, you know, they're, they're, they're making some inroads. But then as soon as you get your first government grant or as soon as you get your first, you know, city contract, um, things can change. And we just, we really need to get to a place where A, housing is a human right. You know, once we determine that and folks can relax, it's not about, it's not about people getting stuff for free, right? <laughs> it just can't be about that anymore because housing as a human right isn't just about putting unhoused people in homes. It's also about strong tenant protections so that renters don't see their rents triple overnight, much like we're seeing in Chinatown in the hillside via apartments. These are these are elderly folks in Chinatown who've lived there three, you know, three decades, suddenly being tossed out on the street. So it's it's comprehensive, right? It's it's all encompassing because if we decide that housing is a human right and that we're going to do things to take care of one another and make sure that everybody has a roof over their head, you know, the rest falls in line. And I'm not saying that services aren't needed. They absolutely are. But what makes me nervous is the conversation is shifting in that direction. Right. Everybody's just talking about mental health is needed, drug addiction, dr- drug you know, drug addiction services are needed. And I worry if we stop talking about the housing part, we're gonna we're gonna force people into these institutions, which let's face it, are prisons right. for services, and ne- and still never give them housing. Right. Tina, it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot. I'm no, sorry. I know. No, I get, no, 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 I'm not. That's not a, that's, that's definitely not a, like <laughs> yeah. a, a complaint. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that is something, you know, I, you brought that up and that is, I, I'm glad you brought it up in that I'm just trying to, anti- I try to anticipate what, for better or for worse, and I may be wildly off, what people do think when they are hearing a piece of the conversation. And so I was thinking like, well, I'm sure mm-hmm. there are people listening who are thinking about the mental health piece of it and sort of what your your own personal on the ground experience has been with that piece of it and, you know, where the, where the tremendous opportunity is. Obviously, there are compassionate people who feel very uncomfortable about what is going on and what the unhoused are going mm-hmm. through. And they are hearing about fentanyl deaths. They are hearing about communities and mm-hmm. you know I have a friend who lives in the hate in San Francisco and is like I'm just seeing people dying on the street right. from particularly right. that but you know just seeing a lot of death on the street and you know so yeah. there are people who are yeah who do feel this sort of daunting like well wait wh- how can we you know if somebody has is mentally ill then giving them a house isn't going to help and you know what i mean like these you the sort of you create this sort of maze in your own brain that is kind of mirrored by the way the city does or doesn't deal with something and you just find yourself kind of going around and around and around and then you just hit a dead end and you go oh i guess i live here now like, I guess I just, my head lives in this place where it's a dead end and that can't but think be. about how much easier it is to give somebody services when you can Great find point. them. Hard to argue with that, right? <laughs> when, Hard to argue with that. When they have their own bathroom and a door that they can shut 
NBC, you know, and, and a caseworker. Cause right now the way it works, you know, they go into transitional housing, let's say the tiny sheds department of mental health swings by a couple times a week for a few minutes, you know, when, when they cleared Venice beach, this is a good example, a, a horrible example, but a good one. Um, you know, those folks have been living on the boardwalk for decades, decades and decades. So what it was going to take to transition them into some kind of transitional shelter is connection, right? And I went out several times. I didn't even go out every day, but I went out a lot. And I went out enough to actually form some intimate connections with a few people on the street. I never saw any of the service agencies, and there are lots of them now. Because that's what the city does is they just put another agency mm. out there and then another agency mm. out there and then another agency out there. Um, ne I never saw anybody else make connections with a couple of these people like I did. And that's a travesty. And then I watched Department of Mental Health 5150 somebody, which is, you know, you're a danger to yourself or others. So you're physically removed and put in like a, a police hospital mm -hmm. kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, folks, like that kind of banishment, people come back in way worse shape than they were when they left, right? And folks are already in a vulnerable state. It only takes seven. I heard this from the LAPD, right? The, um, many, many years ago, their presentation on, on the houseless. It takes seven days to develop permanent PTSD living on the streets. So, blink of you an know, eye. This, a blink of an eye. Right. But again, it's so important that we, you know, folks want to make the connection that folks are living on the streets because they're mentally ill or because they're drug addicted. It often is in the reverse. They're priced out of their living. They, you know, they were living in their car, their car got towed away. Now they're living on the street. You know, those things develop. So again, if we have a housing first approach to all of this, you know, we can, we can be successful with this. We can, we can figure out how to repurpose the resources that we have so that folks can get connected with true services, mental health professionals, domestic violence professionals, drug addiction, doctors. So many people are very, very ill on the streets and haven't seen a physician in years. They have all these physical maladies, you know, which make it very difficult to, to live in a little shed or of course. to live at, you know, to live anywhere on the street that's transitional. A permanent home is the first step, you know, whether, whether folks want to admit that or not, you know, and I think sometimes what happens for people is like, we need, we need in our brains to justify why folks are living on the streets so we can sleep at night. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah. I remember when I was super young and I would ask my parents like, what, what's going on there? Like, why is that person living there? Why then? And I remember my dad back then would say, you know, well, most people living on the streets have mental health problems. This is like, 50 years ago, I'm old, <laughs> 45 years ago. Um, and as I grew into my 20s and then moved to LA and lived in downtown LA for a part of it, I was able to use that to feel okay about folks living on the streets in a, in a weird way. I mean, this is like my own path to it, right? It's, it's um, yeah, because you're right. There are a lot of compassionate people. There are a lot of people who don't want to see folks forced to live on the streets and don't want to see them just swept away or swept into jail, but also like 
the problem's so big, what are we going to do now? And, and you hear this, and unfortunately, the rhetoric about people being service resistant or people coming from other states to live on our fine streets because it's so great out here in California. Like these are so, these are so damaging to the psyche of folks who do want to help right. because you do suddenly say, okay, yeah, people just don't want to be helped right. and, and they're choosing this lifestyle. And I can tell you after years on the streets, nobody is choosing this lifestyle. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you for a million hours. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I am just, I like, I'm so. I, we got to get to the JV stuff. Oh, don't stuff, even worry about right? that. Don't even worry about that. Oh, no, really? no, yeah. I mean, that, that's a that's. I a, wear my Black Lives Matter at school. I, shirt, I love so. it. I love it. No, I mean, I think this is this is it's again. There's there's such big conversations to be had, and and um, uh, for me, this is an opportunity to you know again amplify you know what your message is and and have it not be. Because, you know, $100,000 came from a pharmaceutical company or whatever, you know, to get get your I'm glad you brought that up because it's tough. We need to talk about the Democratic Party. It's tough. We need to talk about who they're beholden to. It's tough. It's really tough. And and the other thing that I was going to say, again, like in lieu of, I mean, I would love to know you better as a person. And that is often what the JV Club is about, is really getting that that sense of someone. But I also feel like I'm sure we both uh, are fine with that not happening happening to deal with some more um, immediate <laughs> issues. Um, okay. But uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, I think another thing that sort of we hear that's this that's a bit of a, a, a song that we hear, and I think it's there's a lot of truth in it. There's also, I'm sure, a lot of rhetoric that, you know, is that we do write off is, you know, one of the things I love hearing, I'm going to get to my point, I promise, uh, that I have been so inspired by from from people I have met in in different communities who are very active in their own communities is this idea of like, I will meet you where you are, but I just I don't want to leave you there. Like, I can't like I get that you your Calling life experience in. brought you to this point And I do want to, and I am compassionate about that. And I do, but I but you got you got to know I'm not going to want to leave you for me, this is leaving you somewhere. I can't leave you. So let me bring you over here. So when you, when you put forth, for example, on a platform of wanting to raise the the minimum wage to, I think it's $39, right? It's it's a little above $39. That is a very, uh, sexy and i say that in a journalism way it's a very sexy number like whoa 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 stop the press this needs to be discussed because it's this hard number that you can see with your eyes it's almost the exact opposite of everything we're talking about uh in terms of what's daunting about big issues when you can put a number like that at minimum wage and say you know like if you don't know what minimum wage is now go look it up in your various communities it ain't 39 dollars um and i think the thing that that people worry about is, well, how is that going to affect me? I'm a small business owner, for example. Like, how does that, because they see that and they feel like, oh, I want to help people, but I'm going to get gouged because that's what I keep seeing happen over and over and over again um, in, you know, in certain areas and certain communities and certain types of businesses. But um, how do we how do we bring people who are like, I would love to worry about the homeless, but I'm just trying to, you know, and I would love to give all my employees health care, but X, Y, Z. How do we include the the lower middle class? How do we include the middle class? How do we not, quote unquote, scare people away um, by thinking Mm -hmm. like, well, 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 it sounds like you only care about the people who are the most in need, but I can't afford 
to ha- to to care the way that you care. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that's a good thing or right, but I think that that is right. that 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 is something that people have been indoctrinated into worrying about. You know what I mean? Um, what do we? How so do you, how do we, we bring those people a, in? Yeah, we talk about um, the minimum wage in terms of what a living wage is to live in Los Angeles, right? If you look at what police officers make, for example, you know the Pol- board of police commissioners Steve Sobroff said recently that LAPD isn't paid enough to live in the city of Los Angeles, and they make fifty to sixty dollars an hour. So it suddenly makes the 39 not sound so high. Um, You know, that number, it comes from the state of California living wage to live in a two bedroom apartment. Right. So that's, you know, it's the, I didn't just pull $39 out of the air. Um, And big business can pay $39 an hour. They truly can. They're choosing not to in the form of wage theft, Right. They're paying people $15 an hour who often then qualify for food stamps or some sort of social system, a service, you know, assistance or housing subsidy. Right. So they're getting they're getting subsidied right now in the form of the wage theft that they're that they're offering. So, you know, there's means testing for businesses to figure out who can pay the $39 an hour. And then for small, true mom and pops, there need to be subsidies for that. There need to be government subsidies for that. So it's it's like a different form of universal basic income when you look at it. So I have talked to folks in the Valley, let's say, who are living three families in a two-bedroom apartment, all adults working 60 hours a week, and they're worried every month that they're going to be evicted. And that's because their wages are so pitifully low. So we are we are at we are at, a, at, at just the crux of this position, right? Housing just went flying up. Wages stayed stagnant. They just did. I mean, I know we've been stepping up to a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, but my goodness, look how long it took us to get there, and that's never going to be enough. I mean, most people are saying twenty twenty five now. Housing needs to come down. Wages need to go up. If we don't attack both at the same time, we'll end up right back where we are again. Right. So that's why I want us to look at a for I want us to look at public housing, social housing, co-op housing and tackle the wages at the same time, because it is all about our quality of life at the end of the day. And, you know, one of the things I like to say when people are interviewing me about this is, well, how much do you make per hour? And it's a great pause and nobody answers that Mm -hmm. question. But if you're living in the city of Los Angeles, I mean, we you, it's not hard to do the math. You have to make $39 to have an apartment, right? Be able to go out to eat once in a while, have your fridge stocked, not worrying about paying your internet bill, you know, all of these things. And, you know, I, I've talked to folks who, who make as much as $50,000, $60,000 a year, have two, three roommates, and they're not sure how much longer they're going to be able to afford to For live sure. here. For sure. So, you know, and then what the corporations, not only do they have wage theft, but then they take advantage of the word inflation gets thrown into the dialogue and they immediately price gouge Mm -hmm. because they know they can because somebody said the magic Mm. word inflation. In fact, Katie Porter had to put a bill in Congress yesterday to stop big oil from price gouging at the pump because they're doing it on purpose. It isn't a supply and demand. Oh, absolutely. This isn't about the Ukraine. This is... 
Right. So we have to get to the crux of like this corporate greed. And my biggest worry is that the Democratic Party now is so beholden to all of these big money players. Right. We've we've been looking to the Democrats vote blue no matter who to save us. And that's tantamount to self-harm. Yeah. Now, because the Democrat the Democrats have a supermajority up in Sacramento right now. And we could not get single payer. We could not get CalCare passed in a pandemic. Everybody knows that we need health care. Everybody knows that the, the crisis of COVID, right? A million deaths is because we have no health care. We have no standardized health care. Abortion, how will we secure a woman's right to abortion? Single payer, health care. You know, these, these are, are no-brainer answers and they'll campaign on it all day long. But then it comes time to do it. And, you know, right after we didn't recall Gavin Newsom, he tanked CalCare. And he is the, the darling of the Democratic Party. And to me, that's just, you know, this is why with this race in particular, you know, folks get really grumbly when I say there's not there's not a lot of daylight between Bass's plans and Caruso's mm -hmm. plans, truth mm -hmm. be told. I mean, he wants he's going to have way more of a police state and he's way more racist, way more bought into the white supremacy and that. But, you know, her plans are no different. She still is going to criminalize people sleeping on the streets. She's still going to give more money to the LAPD that's killing our people. Um, and and I and I, it's not about her. I think it's about the Democratic Party and who they're beholden to. And they're beholden to big oil and they're beholden to big pharma. So you won't see fossil fuels go away with a Democrat in charge. You'll see plans, right? Five years, 10 years. And then, of course, a new politician could get in and that goes away and we never end up getting rid of fossil fuel yeah. drilling. So we need and, and you know, folks in, in the debates I'm in, they're just like, oh, yeah, Gina's building this perfect world. There's no way it's never going to happen. Like, you know, she just doesn't know how things work. Well, I don't know how things work because what's working? <laughs> yeah, I don't see anything working. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Not for not for not for working yeah. people. Right. The ones you mentioned, yeah. you know, right now we haven't had policies. And that's why, you know, the, the small business owners, I'm a small business owner. We're on our own. Like I was so on my own. I got very, t a very tiny PPP loan, not even enough to cover our three full time employees for more than three months of the pandemic. And I didn't have a single trade show for 17 months. OK, so we're given just enough to so I don't even know what make another phone call. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking the time, not just to talk to me, but just to put in the blood, sweat and tears that you are putting into this campaign, because it's very clear that this that is the that is the immediate goal, but that you are here for the long run, whether this happens or not, that you're going to be pushing as hard as you can this agenda from wherever Absolutely. you are. And I think that's the takeaway right. that I want people to have uh, anywhere listening to this is it's a marathon, baby, and it is hard. Yeah. And the best gift you can give yourself is surrounding yourself and, and putting yourself in the position where you are learning from other people and where you are 
lifting up other people and letting other people lift us all up. Um, right. That's where the energy, that's, that's where the fuel is going to come from. It ain't going to come from anywhere else. It's not going to come from an oil company. That's not where the fuel is coming no, from. It's so, not. you know, beautiful struggle. Yeah, it's a beautiful struggle. So uh, that I think is, is so important. And, and, and so thank you so much for continuing to advance that again, regardless, you're not going anywhere. Um, and so, and so that I think is, is very heartening for people who, who do feel the sort of temporariness of campaigning and the sort of like, oh, I don't know, yes. I, I threw my hat in the ring. You know, I have millions of dollars. Like, I don't like, I don't like the homelessness. Um, I'll go throw myself in. You know what I mean? And then it's just gone. I could have fixed it 10 yeah, years ago, sort of, but let me run for mayor you know, the first. Sort of whiff of smoke. Like, remember when? So um, there are people like you. Uh, everywhere who are doing the real work. Mm. And so thank you so much for for doing that. And I hope everyone um, will take that inspiration and do something as small or as large as you feel able to do today in this moment listening to it. So thank you so, so, so much, Jean. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great. We'll talk again soon. The show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Hey, number one, we could save kittens from trees. Or lunch on skyscrapers, bring the villains to their knees. Maybe we should. Someplace new and build time machines to go and get us back. Maximumfun.org Comedy and Culture. Artist owned, audience supported.